God bless and welcome to this week's episode of Family Discussion. We are so glad that you've joined us today. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Jesus teaches us in the Gospel of John that the world will know that we are his followers by the way that we love one another. And yet it seems like the love of Jesus is less and less evident in the way that we speak to and about one another, especially when we disagree. So, in the hopes of recapturing the brother-sister love that Jesus has won for us, we are calling a family meeting. For the next half hour, let's cut through the noise and look at the issues without slander and malice. It's time for a family discussion. Well, God bless and welcome back to another episode of Family Discussion. This is Marcos with you, and as always, I am joined by the honest Lisa Spencer. Lisa, how are you doing today? Honest? Oh, well, I'm going to have to live up to that now. You are. That you've put that out there. <laughs> I, you know, I try to be, and I, I think one of the, um, I think the hardest area of honesty is with ourselves. Mm. It's that self-awareness. It's that self-reflection. And even in the face, and I, you know, I look, I've been a Christian a long time. And even when other people confront you with stuff, sometimes we don't immediately receive it. But with the Holy Spirit's work and some scriptural conviction and we reflect, uh, especially on our self-justification, we look back and say, yeah, you know, I think that person had a point. I think they saw are, something that maybe I want. I wanted to deny. Amen. Are you sure they don't let you preach in your denomination? Because that was a little <laughs> mini sermon there. That was. I really appreciated that. Um, Lisa, we're back. We took a little bit of a break for Advent. Um, let's talk about that for a second. Advent. Wh- why do you think it was a good idea for us to kind of take a break and and not? not kind of clutter the airwaves a little bit with more of these conversations during the Advent season? So, you know, we should always, as as uh, Peter says in his epistle, you know, always keep Christ as Lord before us. Honor Christ in your heart, right? That, that should be a daily activity. But Advent is a special time, in my opinion, of reflection. It's reflection of Jesus' first coming and reflection of his second coming. And I like that it is at the end of the year because I think it it, it should um, help us with the start of the of a new year, right? Because we have this New Year's thing. Oh, it's the start of the new year and new this, new everything. And 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 how about it? it if nothing else, just a fresh perspective. And especially now, we there's so many issues out there, both inside and outside of the church. And especially if you are, um, you know, imbibing social media and keeping up on all of the controversies and all of the debates and disputes, that we, we can really get off track and off focus. And so we don't want to lend to that noise during Advent season. It really, and I have, I have struggled. Like I've had to be very intentional about, okay, this is Advent. Let's you know, give the, the debates and the speeds of rest. Not that I've been um, all that successful, but <laughs> at the same time, I confess, well, you know, I haven't, but, but at the same time, just wanting to, you know, just really wanting to honor that time. 
so I, I'm glad that we that we took that time off. Well, I, I agree with you, and I think it was important that we take the time because we are jumping into some topics here over these next few weeks that are controversial and where there is disagreement, not just between you and I, um, at least on the secondary issues that we're going to be talking about. But there's also just so much heat around the conversations of gender, sexuality, gender roles, God's design for our sexuality. There's so much heat around this that if we are um, going to dive into these conversations, we want to keep the first things the first things and celebrating who Jesus is and what he's accomplished in his birth, in his life, death, and resurrection, his ascension, his, his return. If, if we don't keep ourselves focused there, then these conversations around these issues can become kind of culture worry as we talk about them, rather mm -hmm. than about faithful discipleship before Jesus Christ. And so the Advent season can help center us on, okay, we're focused on Christ, we're focused on who he is, what he's done. Now we can jump in to these conversations from the right framework um, mm -hmm. so that we're not we're not trying to, to solve a culture war. We're trying to have faithful conversation between a brother and sister trying to figure all this out. And, and really what we're focusing on um, as we come into this new year is we are focusing on uh, really God's design for gender, sexuality, really what that looks like in Genesis 1 and 2, how sin has impacted each of these things. So we're going to be talking about sin more in this half of the season than we did in the in the last part of 2021. Um, because it's as we've been moving through Genesis 1 and 2 and starting to head towards Genesis 3, we're going to start seeing the perversion of these good things by sin. And that's really what sin does, is it perverts a good thing that God has created and turns it into something wicked. And and so we're going to be talking about, you know, not only God's design for sexuality and gender, but how has sin perverted that design? And, and what are some of the manifestations of that? And how do we lovingly work through these really contentious issues, especially in our context today? How do we do that in a way that honors Christ and doesn't just win an argument? Because I think for so many, we're just trying to win arguments. Trying to win arguments, yes. So, um, all right. Genesis 2 is where I think we want to start today. Um, and, you know, it, Lisa, after I make a couple comments here, if you want to push back into, uh, well, I guess we can go to Genesis 1. Yeah. Let's, I, I, yeah. Yeah. I think we should do one. So let's start Genesis 1. Uh, you've got it open in front of you. Why don't you read just um, maybe verse 27? It'd be a good place to start the conversation. Sure. sure. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So, um, Lisa, it is not a surprise to our listeners that we come to the conversation of gender from slightly different places, um, and that's okay. Uh, we're going to not be getting into the gender role conversation today. That's a conversation we will get into down the road a little bit. We want to instead um, just start unpacking what is the Bible's understanding of gender. So when you read mm -hmm. Genesis 127, 
Um, and what are some of the immediate things that pop out at you about God's design and creation for gender? Well, there are, there's a distinction, right? There's, you know, a male is not a female, a female is not a male. So that's the first immediate thing. Um, and then, but both are created in the image of God, right? It's not, the woman is not created in the image of man. You know, the man created an image of God. I think sometimes that gets twisted with First Corinthians, the first part of First Corinthians 11. Um, that That's not what this is saying, that God created each of them in their distinctiveness mm. in the image of God. Mm. Well, and I, I wonder, um, because the, the, the difference between egalitarian and complementarian is going to come up throughout these conversations mm -hmm. as we approach this. But one of the commitments that I've made and you've made to these conversations is to deal with the best form of the argument that we disagree with and not the straw man fallacy that's out there, right? right. So in as you approach this as a complementarian woman, mm -hmm. um, when you see that both male and female are made in the image of God, your complementarianism, I would assume, does not conflict with this in any stretch. Not, in, not at all. Right. So, so walk through... Kind of just by way of description rather than debate, when you read these verses and you think, okay, in a complementarian framework, um, why is it important to you as a complementarian that people understand that you're not denying the equality of image bearing between the man and the woman? Right. Well, because the mandate was given to both of them, you know, because it says in verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So this image that, you know, that these uh, two distinct genders that God created, he gives a mandate to them that they are to work together. They both have equal value um, in that. Now, how that plays out in the home and the church is another conversation. But what we don't want to do is take away the value of, um, you know, of the man or, or particularly of the woman, you know, as someone being made in the image of God, because we're, you know, because now we're looking at, well, how does that apply, you know, in real world situations? So, and this is important for us, I think, to keep coming back to. There are some complementarians who would deny the equality of men and women, just like mm -hmm. there are egalitarians who would deny any distinction between men and women. But that's not the best form of the argument. And that doesn't represent the majority of uh, complementarians and egalitarians. And, and so as we're drawing this out, one of the things I want to keep underlining is, okay, as we are defining complementarian, and, and as really you are, Lisa, as the complementarian in this conversation, defining complementarianism, hopefully people will be able to better appreciate the other argument and not just deal with the caricature of what some person on Twitter defines complementarianism as. You know, this is a woman who's in a PCA church and serves there. Um, and and worships there and is a complementarian and, and your definition I think should go a long way because you're in the pews and you're living this out. Um, yes. So 
so walk through as as we are made in God's image as man and woman or as male and female and God sees that it's good why do you think I can imagine somebody asking the question because I've been asked the question why does Genesis 2 seem to describe the creation event differently than what we get in, in Genesis 1 I mean, um, you suddenly have instead of I they're know, both made together <laughs> like you suddenly have the man is made in a particular way and then the woman is yeah. made later and like it seems different I you know what I, I and I would punt that back I would punt that see I'm the complementarian and so I'm going to punt it back to the <laughs> what is that no okay, I'm joking okay for, my listeners, I'm, for our listeners I'm joking <laughs> All right, so um, are you actually punting it back, though? Do you want me to... Uh, okay, you are punting it back. You're punting it back. All right. Well, um, I, I, was just, I was curious your answer on that because one of the things that can happen in the conversation around how God's designed for gender is that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 can be pitted against one another sometimes where egalitarians will point to Genesis 1 and say, well, see... God makes them both in their They're made at the same time. They're both given the same commands. And, and therefore, fundamental equality across the board and nothing future in God's revelation can undermine that. Um, whereas complementarians regularly point to Genesis 2 and say, yes, but Adam was created first. And they lean into that one. And so that's mm -hmm. why I was curious if, if you had done any wrestling in the difference between the two narratives because they're used they're used against right. one another as if scripture doesn't speak with a unified voice right and you know and the or and the creation order is one of the backbones of complementarianism which again you know there's more to the bible than genesis 1 and 2 so we have to look at what does the whole counsel of god have to say about a particular topic not just one or two verses Right. And yeah, so once yeah. you get into the New Testament, I think that's where you start seeing these, you know, these roles, these, you know, distinctions between, um, you know, the difference between man and woman, and particularly as it's attached to the creation order. And I'll be honest, this is why this is what anchors my my complementarian. This is what keeps me from being an egalitarian, even though I would consider myself a soft complementarian. Um, it is it's precisely that that creation order. So I would say, you know, if you look at the difference, well, you're right, they're compatible, right? So men and women are given equal value as the image of God. But then we also have the the reality of a creation order that I think that really needs to be considered. So you see these I, I'm not even trying to think of this as a pun, but you see this as complementing passages that go together oh, yes. and and so the oh, yeah. first would underscore the the fundamental equality of man and mm -hmm. woman is made in the image of god the second in the created order starts to hint towards more of a complementarian framework that's better fleshed out in the new testament is that a fair yes. okay that's, that's, okay that's a fair and again we're looking at how does this play out in real world applications okay. particularly in the home and the church. Now, I know some folks go further than that and say, well, this is across the board. No, the Bible speaks to the home and to particularly to the church, right? Which is why I have absolutely no problem 
with not being ordained, you know, not being given the title pastor, because look at give going back to Genesis one, if my value is tied to an ordination, that's automatically undermining the image of God. Right? God, I, you know, I have value simply because God made me and he made me in his image. That's my value. That's amen. Amen and amen and amen. And I think that has to be underscored, not just for complementarians, but egalitarians as well. Because when we make this about ordination, and when, when all gender discussion is driven by the ordination debate, we can lose sight of that. Men and women have value because they are made in the image of God. There is dignity and value and worth there. And that value is equal to both because both receive it. And how that's worked out is not going to then redefine value. You know, and, and that's, I think, something that's important because I'll be honest, in egalitarian circles, we can sometimes talk about women's ordination in such a way that can, maybe unintentionally so, I'd hope unintentionally so, demean the unordained woman who is also a theologian. And mm -hmm. we can go, well, then why don't you just get ordained? Well, because worth and value and ability and and skill and theological um, astuteness is not tied to ordination status. So I really appreciate you you putting that out there for us. Um, all right, let's go into Genesis 2 and the creation of the man and the woman. Before we do, is there anything else from Genesis 1, Lisa, that you wanted to... Well, I kind of, you know, I, I think we'll get there because I wanted to go into how Genesis 27 uh, weds with Genesis 28, and, and especially in terms of when we're thinking about gender and this distinctiveness, you know, the male is a male, the female is a female, and, um, you know, what that means for um, human sexuality. But I guess we'll eventually get there. I'm I'm pretty sure we will have okay. to. And <laughs> and you know, I mean another question that's that I have coming out of this is while there is a, clearly a distinction between male and female, I think an implication that is drawn from that is that there is a clear distinction between what is masculine and what is feminine. But I don't know how to define that well. And so I think that'd be a good conversation for us as well at some point. Is saying, sure. how do we define something as masculine and something else as feminine? Um, you know, one author that I really appreciate said something is feminine because I am a female and I did it. Therefore, it is a feminine act. And I'm going, go. that's pretty awesome. I really like that. But we also live in a culture particularly in the church that would say that's a masculine thing that's a feminine thing yeah and and i'm curious how we can develop that kind of a framework from the scriptures rather than from the culture around us um but i think that's for another day um yes. all right genesis chapter two i'm gonna start in verse 7, which is in the middle of a sentence, and apologies to people who like whole sentences, but verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man, and here specifically it is not using the word man like it did in 127, where it's a kind of an all-encompassing word for humanity, but it's specifically the man, the male. 
Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, Lisa, this to me is one of the most important verses when it comes to our understanding of what it is to be human, um, our understanding of things like gender and sexuality. Um, when you read verse 7 and you see the way it's described, God forming the man out of the dust, there's the physical, and God breathing life into him, there's the spiritual, and the man becomes a living creature. Um, how is this verse helpful for you in grounding your own understanding of humanity and your understanding of what it is to be a person made by God? Well, because it, because God did it, mm. right? And as much as, because we are so oriented towards, you know, wanting to take credit for ourselves, especially when we work on ourselves, you know, let's say you're a workout, avid workout person, which I am not, by the way, much to my husband's chagrin, he's been like, you know, giving me a little nudge and poke like okay we have we actually have an apparatus downstairs <laughs> which is you know gather well it doesn't gather dust because he uses it oh, but right, anyways right. i'll you know i'll get there <laughs> yeah look i was going to the gym yeah and i was going good and then COVID hit oh. and i just have not been able to to All get right. myself together All so right. um but it's it's the idea that god that god did it, it it's all him like we you know I, I look at what Paul says in Acts 17, right, at Mars Hill, when he's, you know, he's using the, the secular poets, but basically explaining how this is a truth about God. In him, we live and move and have our being. And I think a lot of the, I think a lot of the issues, a lot of the lack of love, a lot of the preening and posturing that we see in the church would probably be cut down if we really grasp this idea that it all comes from God. What do you have that has not been given to you, right? We have life because of God. I mean, it, there's this song that uh, is sung in contemporary worship circles that I really like. It, it's your breath in our lungs. Mm -hmm. and, and that reminder that even the ability to breathe in and speak out words is gifted. It, it's a, at any point that that life, that breath can be removed from you, that the author of life also holds the key to death. And, and so it is his. He, it, it should be humbling to us that these involuntary things, really breathing is an involuntary thing. You can stop it if you want. But eventually, involuntarily, you're going to breathe in again. That's just how living works. It, yeah. These processes are governed by an almighty God who is caring for us and making sure that the breathing continues. Like just that simple, your heart beating is an involuntary act. You're not asking your heart to beat. It does it on its own, but it does it at the will of your heavenly father. Right. That's and, pretty and incredible. And look at, so man wasn't created to the sixth day, right? So you had all this activity going on. At any point, God could have said, yeah, this is good enough. I'm going to, you know, have the animals act a certain way so they take care of the creation. But it wasn't good enough, right? Man and woman had to be created. So, yeah, and it, and it comes from him. 
and and it and they're created in a specific way. I really love the care that the author of Genesis two takes to show the physical and the non-physical being created into one being. And this is something that I think should help Christians Mm -hmm. to really walk through issues like transgenderism. Mm -hmm. We are, as um, my seminary professor would would say, we are psychosomatic units. We are body and soul, enfleshed souls. You cannot remove the body from the soul and still have a complete human that even at death, when the soul is removed from the body and is present with the Lord in paradise, that that soul is awaiting the resurrected body. Right. That that's why we must have... If if it was okay to separate the two, if the spirit mattered so much more than the, than the physical body did, we would not have to wait for a resurrection body. We could just exist in some sort of heavenly spiritual plane. Mm-hmm. But it is physical. The new heavens and new earth is physical. We have physical resurrection bodies made after the resurrection body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it, there is this inherent um, unity between body and soul that I think evangelicalism has so long downplayed that when the transgenderism conversation came up, we were caught completely off guard. Because I have been told at an evangelical college, I was taught that I was basically wearing an earth suit. Oh, boy. And that I would then have a new earth suit in heaven. But that this earth suit is disposable. It's just disposable. Well, then how can you speak to somebody who says, I feel I am a man in a woman's body or a woman in a man's body, how can you speak to them and say, don't change it if all you have is a disposable earth suit? Right. We are psychosomatic units. Our bodies tell us just as much about who we are as our inner soul tells us who we are. And and I feel like not having that bound together has left us toothless in a lot of these um, cultural conversations. Right. And, and, and on that note, you know, if you go back to Genesis 1 and verse 28, when he says, be fruitful and multiply, well, how does that happen? I mean, we're all adults. We know how that happens. But how can it happen unless you have these two distinctly different no people question. with two distinctly different anatomies that, oh, by the way, from a physical perspective fit perfectly together well and this is where we have the you know so it is helpful in this regard to make a distinction between gender and sexuality Mm -hmm. um here we see that there is a sexual nature to human beings built in from the very beginning and you know this is a um this is a topic that has gotten a lot of conversation um particular in social media circles because of a Puritans get a bad rap for this because they were super emotional and in touch with their feelings, right? But like this puritanical view, this fun this uber fundamentalist view of sex, where it's this almost like necessary evil 
that married people because and they use Paul if you must get married because you're burning with passion then go ahead and do it and it's almost like this well I guess but from the beginning we're talking creation mandate Genesis 1 you are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it that is the that is within the context of sexuality which means sexuality is not a creational mistake but is a designed thing that God has given to humanity for specific purposes. And I, I think it's something that we're going to have to wrestle with a little bit, particularly in a culture that has in put sex in an improper place and by doing so devalued it pretty severely. Right. And I think that, you know, you talked about transgenderism and I would say even, you know, the issue of same-sex marriage, you know, and why, you know, why do we see evangelicals, you know, struggling with that? Well, it's, well, if you really love, you know, love somebody, you can't help who you love. And, you know, it should be okay if a man, you know, if a man loves a man or a woman loves a, a woman, it's like, no, it's not okay, because God has already established the foundation for love and, and love it, uh, uh, between the two genders as he established it. So again, it's going back to what you said about this detachment of the, you know, what's spiritual from the physicality that God made. Well, and, and it also devalues or it at least um, twists our understanding of love. Because, yeah, if you love somebody, well, then I guess it's okay. And, and sex enters into the conversation as if sex is a necessary requirement for love to be able to be expressed. And what this can do is lead not just to an erroneous view of sex, but to some profound abuses, profound abuses that that um, many women are coming forward and talking about. The, the, the sexual abuse that they have experienced at the hands of clergy, yes, but also at the hands of their own husbands because they were told that if they properly loved their husbands, they would basically do whatever their husband told them to do when it came to sexual matters, as if their sex and, their, their sex and love were one and the same. Mm-hmm. And that's it has led to some pretty horrific abuse, and that's we're going to talk about abuse later in this in this season because, you know, some of these issues that have come up around sexuality and gender really have unmasked an underbelly within the church that's that's pretty awful, um, and the the easy thing to do is to blame a brand of Christianity for it, but I think what we've seen is, um, you know, I, I I tend to put this out there. Um, that Bill Hybels was not a part of the SBC. Bill Hybels is an egalitarian. So it is not a brand of Christianity that leads to these abuses. A desire for power leads to these abuses. Mm -hmm. And there are some theological understandings that are outside of the complementarian egalitarian debate that can lead to some profound abuses within families and within marriages. Um, because... It's a total misunderstanding of God's design for sex and sexuality. Um, Lisa, when we... I'm curious your view on this. So that's the creation of, of Adam. That's the creation of the first man. Down the way, 
and down the way a little bit, there's quite a bit that happens, and uh, we'll we'll get into that as we get into some kind of gender role conversations and stuff like that. But down the way, we get to the creation of the woman. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. Man gave names to all his livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And on the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. We can get into 23 and 24 later. Um, maybe not even in this episode another time. But the creation of woman from the rib of the man. When you read this, what are some of the things that come to your mind? What, what, what strikes you about this creation narrative of uh, the creation of Eve? Well, you know, because it's, again, you talk about abuses. And unfortunately, this passage, I think, has been used to subordinate women, right? And, and, and why it should be no surprise that, you know, women are, are viewed as merely objects, you know, objects in the home, um, you know, assigned, um, you know, very strict roles like, oh, well, you're only good for cooking and cleaning, washing children, and giving into your husband whenever he wants it, right? Because then, because we've quote, by, by that juncture, we've, we've totally um, ignored what God said in Genesis 1, 27. So I look at this, and to be honest with you, and I know some you know, so so in this in this account, we have the man who is being created out of the dust. We have the woman who's being created out of the the rib. But guess what? It's still God doing the creating, right? And He chose in His wisdom because He has every one hundred percent right to do as He as He is, and because He's God. And his manifold wisdom, that's how he chose to do it. Right? So I don't get hung up on the, you know, the fact that woman was created out of the ribbon or out of the rib of man. Um, you know, I've heard the cliches, well, that means, you know, he wasn't, that means that she's supposed to be by his side and everything. It's like, I don't know, if we can read that into, into this account. Only that God in his wisdom chose to create woman. Out of the rib of man, out of his wisdom, he chose to create man out of the dust of the earth. Hmm. Yeah, I, you know, you say that it reminds me of a Matthew Henry quote that gets thrown around a lot. Matthew Henry was a, a biblical commentator from a few few generations ago now. Mm -hmm. um, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Um, you know, frankly, if if that is what's going on here, I'll take it. I'll take it. There's something... It, it, it's, fine. It, it's fine. It's fine. But I think, you know, I think that there's a place where we can read into that because what follows is, you know, well, what? why was the woman created? Right. right? Well, the woman was created 
for for man. So man would not be alone. And I, 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 I don't restrict that necessarily to the marriage covenant, but also to, you know, we talked in previous episodes about the creation mandate and how when going back to Genesis 1, uh, 27, that were, you know, male and female are made in the image of God and be fruitful and multiply. Is that talking about marriage? Well, yes, but it's also talking about more than that. So that man and woman together are, you know, are, are, are doing this, uh, this creation mandate. Um, but it also ought to, it also ought to give the man um, the sensitivity about the value of women. Hmm. Right. Talk more about that. Yeah. I mean, it's like, so God, you know, so God said it's not, it's, it's good for man not to be alone. Like, look, God could have said, y'all, y'all on your own, just knock it out, <laughs> you know, knock it out, do it. But he said, you all, you need some help. Right. <laughs> I, I joke I joke with my husband like that. I said, you know what? I'm just here to help. So, which, is, which is biblically, it's biblically help. accurate, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, it is. But, but the fact that, again, we're talking about the manifold wisdom of God, where he said, you, you can't do it alone, right? And I, and I do. I, I look at my single brothers who want to get married. Look, look my husband was 65. Um, when we got married, hadn't been married before. It wasn't for a lack of wanting for, I mean, decades. He want, he wanted to be married. There are brothers out there who want to be married. I think it is a godly desire, right? Just based on these, these passages that we're looking at. Um, but, and, and there's a reason for that, right? There's, there's a reason that we, we don't want to be alone. And sometimes I think, Sometimes I think the church can, you know, kind of be a little, folks in the church can be a kind of batter that, you know, and say, well, you know, you're being idolatrous or whatever. Look, it's a, it's a God-given desire. So, you know, I do, I do feel for my single brothers who, and my single sisters, you know, who do have that uh, longing I did, um, but there's a reason for it. And that means, you know, we we need each other, you know, so even outside of the marriage covenant, in the church, we need each other. As we function in this world, yeah, we need each other. Amen. And and I think, you know, we, we joke about the, the rib coming out of the side and, you know, what does that mean? You know, I, I think there's something romantic about that quote, but I think what's really happening in Genesis 2 is it's an emphasis on the woman is made of the same substance as the man. They are of the same kind. And and we know that he has just taken Adam through this exercise of seeing that there are no other creatures that are suitable to be his helper because they are not of the same kind as him. They're not human. And that, you know, we, we, we keep saying this this season, it is good to be human. We want to celebrate that it is good to be human. Well, that is why he needs a helper who is also human. Same capacities same same species he needs a helper who is of the same substance as him and and this is the beginnings of human need for community you know the the most um 
the narrowest version of that community is marriage between these two people. But then it starts to broaden out, right? It's Then you get to, you know, if the Lord gives children to that marriage, well, that broadens it out. If there are extended families that go along with this marriage. But then there's especially the church, which is a place where those of us who are made of the same substance, men and women, a community of faith, are together able to be the representation of Christ to a watching and needful world. And so there is this, really what Genesis 2 is getting at is saying, it was not good for Adam to be alone. And I don't mean the only person in the garden or the only um, the only creature in the garden, because there's all these other creatures that are there with him. But he has authority over them because he gets he, he's there to keep them. He's there to, um, to manage them. He gets to name them, all those things. But he needs one who is like him, of the same substance, a helper. And, and helper, and this is something that I, I really appreciate the way that egalitarians have leaned into this. And I hear complementarians talk about this now sometimes too. That this word helper is used of God. And it? yeah, this is, God says, I will be their help. I am their helper. This is not by any way subordinate God to the people that he is helping. To be a helper is not to be a lesser form of human and it is not to be subservient it is to be one who can help and if we really wanted to compare the way this word is used of god then it would lead us to say well then maybe women are greater than men because god calls himself as hey. a... <laughs> we don't want to go there either no but we I'm don't just... want to go there but if we're going to wreck in a ditch at least that's a little bit more exegetically sound of a ditch <laughs> than something else what it's getting at here the text is we are of the same substance we can help one another as we serve the lord in doing the work in genesis 2 and doing the work of of cultivating and maintaining the garden in the church as we do the work of being the church and serving one another in one body through our spiritual gifts and developing the fruit of the spirit in one another and so you know i think when we when whatever we say about gender and sexuality whatever we say the, the ground for us hating abuse is the fundamental equality that exists between men and women and there can be disagreement yes about how that works itself out when it comes to certain offices or roles in the family but my goodness we ought never come to a place this kind of patriarchal view that women are less than men. That's simply an unbiblical, completely unchristian view of humanity. Um, all right, I'll get off my soapbox now, Lisa. What do you What do you got for us before we say goodbye? I was, to folks? you know, and I say this, <laughs> and I have seen this work out so beautifully in the church. Yes, even in my complementarian church, right? Because somehow we've assigned like if women can't be in the pulpit then, mm. you know, we're really undervaluing. Right, right. And which I, I completely disagree with because what I've seen in the church is the way that the deacons work with different teams of women who work together to address the needs, the physical needs of the church. You know, I've seen women rally together to address those needs, not and not just with other women, but when there's a call uh, to help, like they just see, they want to help, they want to support. Um, 
and, you know, men and women working together. Um, I, I've seen that play out in the, at least the past several years in my, in the two PCA churches that I've been a member of. Um, and it's really, it really is a beautiful picture. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that we, we want to leave people with in that we really want to emphasize as we move into these conversations is we, one of the reasons why I thought it was important when we started family discussion for Lisa, you and I to be having these talks is because you are a woman, I am a man and we're coming to these as equal people to talk about these things. And yes, I'm an egalitarian. Yes, you're a complementarian. Yes, I'm ordained. Yes, you're not ordained. But that doesn't mean that the unordained folks can't have conversations about this in depth. And it doesn't mean that the ordained folks don't need to be learning from people who are non-ordained. And, and that plays itself out in complementarian churches as much as in egalitarian churches. Mm -hmm. Women are perhaps not in an official capacity, but when I mean office, women have things to teach the men in the church by mm -hmm. their example and with their word and with their ability their, to open and, the scriptures. <laughs> and with the words. And listen, let me tell you, because sometimes I think this, there's this caricature built up about reformed churches based on a few bad examples. Um, you know, I've gone to seminary. I wrestle with things theologically. I like to, to think about, I like to think theologically, um, to, you know, to think it, how, how does something, um, um, how is this compatible with scripture? And just, just think through a lot of issues. Um, and, and thank God that I'm very grateful that he's given me the capacity that he's given. But, and, and so with that, um, and having a love for the church, I, you know, I invest in understanding Presbyterianism and understanding Presbyterian government and understanding what is going on in the church, uh, which is why I tune into, you know, that now that they live stream General Assembly, you know, I listen to floor debates and I read the overtures. Um, I know that, you know, not every woman does that and that's fine. We all have our, you know, different interests and orientations. Um, I don't mean sexual orientations. Don't go there. Because um, I can see somebody picking that out. You know, people <laughs> That's not the email. Days. Don't send and that I email. Don't get a nasty email. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, and I've had many conversations, not just with ordained men, but with other men in, you know, in the congregation and, you know, about theological issues about ecclesia you know about ecclesiology about the PCA and what's going on not once now there are a couple outliers but not but not not from leadership not once have I ever felt dismissed have I ever felt or why are you wearing your pretty little head about these complex issues right I have I, I've, I've been in discussions with teaching elders, ruling elders who value my input. They listen to what I have to say. We have good conversations. Um, and so I, you know, that again, it's the, you know, do I need to be ordained? Do I need to have a title to have those conversations? Of course not. I've been told in my participation in Sunday school class, where I the questions I asked or the comments I made, 
I, you know, I've been told by men, I really love your comment. You brought clarity to that, you know, to that issue. I really appreciate what you said. Um, so yes, we can value. There's a place that we, we must value um, equally women and men in our congregation. And so I just want to put that out there because there's this caricature that really disturbs me because of these bad examples. That has not been my experience. Well, and, you know, that was a... I don't think you intended it necessarily as a segue, but it's the greatest segue of all time because you're going to bring some of your experience to the next episode. And so I wonder if you can give folks just kind of a sneak preview of what they're in for next week. Um, (laughs) Because we are not the only ones talking about issues of, of sexuality and gender. Many people are, including your denomination, the PCA. And so I wonder um, some of your colleagues in the PCA that you spend some time with who are ordained in the PCA are going to be joining us. So can you give us a little bit of a uh, preview yes, of what we're looking we're at? we're going to be just talking about some rubber meets the road issues. Um, and these are men with whom I, one is um, here um, in Roanoke, um, also in my small group. Uh, we've had many discussions um, he listens intently to what I have to say. Um, we've had some very good conversations um, about issues related to the PCA, about theological matters. Um, the other is a um, is a PCA pastor in New York who has invited me to his church to um, to speak at a women's conference. And you know, we follow each other on social media. Um, you know, had good interactions. He really values. Uh, what I bring to the table, and so, um, so I'm really, yeah, I'm really excited about um, about our next episode and being able to chat with these brothers. All right, well, that is going to be a lot of fun. I hope you're able to be with us next week for that, Lisa. Thanks for setting that up uh, with your contacts there in the PCA and these brothers that you've spent some time working with. Um, for us, this has already kind of been a little bit of a long episode, so we're going to sign off from today's episode of Family Discussion. We have a whole rest of the season to talk about issues of sexuality and gender. So we're just now scratching the surface, but I hope that this was encouraging to you. Thank you, Lisa, for your time today. And thank you listeners for being with us. We'll see you again for another episode of Family Discussion next week. Well, thank you again for joining us for this week's Family Discussion. If you'd like to learn more or catch up on episodes you missed, head on over to our home at reformedmargins.com. There you'll find great content about a whole host of issues that we pray will bless your relationship with Jesus, including articles written by Lisa Spencer and me, Marcos Ortega. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Your hosts are Marcos Ortega and Lisa Spencer. Our producer is Larry Lynn. Family Discussion is hosted by Podbean and recorded with Audacity. If you like what you heard today, it would be a great help to us if you gave a quick review and rating on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your favorite content so that you don't miss our next Family Discussion. Thank you.